Infinite Turtle, the, the waves through the ether fuzz roll on forever. You are listening to Death by DVD, and I am Harry Scott Sullivan. I unfortunately have to begin this episode with some very bad news regarding something involved in the production of this show. While trying to repair a vintage 1986 Laserdisc player, a radioactive laser beam shot from the machine and killed the beloved mascot of our show that we've never mentioned before, Felix the Hamster. Here to mourn Felix the Hamster with me, it's I, Alexander Nash. Hello! You have nothing to say about poor Felix? Felix the Hamster? Fuck him! <laughs> I need a death ray. I'm going to own this block. Well, you need to come see my parents, because they think they're the head of this block. And if you don't know the movie we're quoting, why would you? May God have mercy on our souls. You don't really need to know it, because it's going to be a little bit of a, a history lesson tonight. Yes, that's true. I think, honestly, we can say for once we're discussing a lost movie. That term is thrown out. Way too loosely these days. People will talk about a lost movie and it's fucking available on Blu-ray. This is available in some circuits, I guess, on DVD. I think it's out of print, but you can still find it. Very out of print. We're talking about a movie from 1986. Great title. Title far exceeds the movie. Raiders of the Living Dead. Well, you see, you've already lied to them because you said it's 1986. Because it's also 1982. 1984 and 1986 because it's not just one movie it's three movies that are also just one movie and that's where the story comes in we honestly have a movie that the making of the movie is more interesting than the movie itself and we have watched all three versions of this film we've been studying it honest to god for an episode and i still have little to no idea what any of them are about. There's one version, I think it's the original version of the movie, is probably the most interesting and somewhat has a story, kind of. Something happens in the 1880s and then there are zombies and that goes on roughly 60 minutes and stops. And that's it. Well, you gotta get into a little bit of the backstory of what this film is with Writers of the Living Dead. It starts with a man named Brett Piper, who made movies in New Hampshire in the early 80s. He had made a film before this one, but this was the second film that he had made that was called Graveyard. That's the original title it started out with. You might know Brett Piper from other films, such as uh, another one he made was uh, a movie called Fortress, which is kind of a sword and sorcery slash post-apocalyptic film. 
that you would better know as a nymphoid barbarian in dinosaur hell. Sharma bought the rights to that backyard opus of his and re-edited it, threw in some um, like trauma stock footage, put some uh, a little bit of narration on the, the front and back end, and kind of turned into their style of film because Brett Piper made originally a more like, you know, it was more, more serious but still cheap kind of Conan ripoff film. And he also made a film called They Bite, which is about um, fish monsters fucking porn stars. I shit you not. Uh, it stars Ron Jeremy. He's in there. It's actually that's what it's probably his best film. If you uh, ask me, it's um, it's got a really great sense of humor. That's a 90s film, right? 95, 96 or something like that. Yeah, but I think it was shot earlier than that. It came out filing on video in like 95, 96, but it was shot, I think, in like 91, maybe or 92. Because I remember when it came out on video, it was like a, a really big deal. And uh, his other one is Drainiac, which I've never seen, but um, I'm pretty sure Synapse put that at one point on DVD or Blu-ray. But I could be completely wrong about that. But anyway, Brett Piper had made this backyard film called Graveyard that was about an hour long. And he ended up selling it to a man named Sam Sherman. And you might know <laughs> Sam Sherman as... Not to be confused with... Not Sam Shepard. It's not famous Hollywood American writer Sam Shepard. There, there's been a, a, one of us. Guess which one? There was some confusion. <laughs> yeah, one of us may or may not have the whole time they were studying this gone, I cannot fucking believe this was uh, Sam Shepard. Fucking blown away. Jessica Lange's ex-husband. Fucking mind-blowing. But it is not Sam Shepard. No, Samuel Sherman, who um, was a film producer who probably is most notably worked with Al Adamson. So if you know who Al Adamson is, who is just kind of a cheap shit director. Uh, did Severin put out the Al Adamson box set? They did. That's that's. I decided to go with Milligan over Adamson, and I don't know if I ever will make the right decision. But Severin put that box uh, set you out. You did yeah. probably, because I'm not a big Al Adamson fan either. I don't know if I'm even an Andy Milligan fan. <laughs> For you to like make movies and end up buried under a hot tub. Uh, that's an interesting life. But anyway, um, Sam Sherman, and um, he worked with Al Adamson, and what he, him and uh, Al Adamson did was buy footage or buy films from, say, like the Philippines, Indonesia, take it to America, shoot some new footage around, probably more of the more big production uh, scenes, redub a lot of it and make a new movie out of it. Like Dracula versus Frankenstein. Um, that was completely Al Adamson though. That didn't have any pre-existing like Filipino footage in it, but was it curse of the blood monsters or horror of the blood monsters? That's an old Filipino film that they shot new footage for. But anyway, they did this kind of B picture for the drive-in circuit for years and years and years. And Sam Sherman owned a uh, company called independent international pictures. And, uh, you know, biker pictures, all the kind of exploitation hits, black exploitation did one or two in all those uh, markets throughout like the the drive in era. So when he bought this film from Brett Piper, the drive in era was basically ending at that point. And when it was ending, the smaller uh, studios were trying to figure out a way to, you know, make up that money because you can't really have a B picture that really makes you money unless you have that drive-in circuit because on the drive-in circuit it didn't matter kind of the length, the quality. Um, it could be a 60 minute film, which is what Brett Piper turned in. But since that market had started really drying up and video like VHS was starting to come around, it wasn't huge, huge, huge yet, but it was getting there. So 
Sam Sherman bought this, and what he was going to do is he was going to put this film in a package of like say four other films and sell them like these four packages or this package of four films to different um, local television markets. So you could have these four movies and sell them for like ten thousand dollars to like a Svengoolie type show, or you know, because there's so many different little markets you could sell them to, all these different little. Um, local stations that will buy this kind of stuff. So that's really what he bought the film for. But at 60 minutes, he can't release it as a B picture for the drive in. He can't really release it in a TV package and video really just kind of wasn't there yet. It was getting there. So he got really kind of irritated uh, because he wasn't the one who actually bought it. It was somebody who worked for him who bought it and he was trying to figure out what he could do with it. So he asked Brett Piper to, shoot some new footage because he did not deliver him a feature length film. So Brett Piper obliges and shoots 20 extra minutes and turns in the, to this film, which is called dying day. And the 20 extra minutes of footage is that beginning of dying day. It's the, um, the weird, almost green, oddly filtered, oddly shot in a lot of ways. Um, stuff that takes place in like the mansion or castle matte painting thing you saw at the beginning and the drunk guy and all that stuff. That's all the extra footage. And it pissed Sam Sherman off because some of this extra footage that he had shot has fucking nudity in it and lots of violence. And he's trying to sell it to TV markets. So he decides he's going to do something else with it. And he takes the, footage he wants from dying day and we'll get into the specifics of the differences between all these films here in a second i'm just giving you the lineage of the story shoot some new footage edits it in rehires all like the the same main actors that brett piper had for dying day and shoots the new footage retools it all to be a film called dark knight and sam sherman is still not happy with that film and he did manage to actually think i he got it to play on television um on the usa network for a little bit and then took the money that USA licensed it for to turn around and shoot even more new footage to finally release what we know as Raiders of the living dead, which is a far cry off from the original dying day slash graveyard because dying day is like a, it ain't great. It's a shitty shot on like 16, not even super 16, 16 millimeter, sometimes probably eight millimeter film. And it's, gothic it's kind of dark it's trying to tell an actual story like a horror story and then by the time you get to the end with raiders of the Living dead it's been turned into a kid's film because we are trying to sell a movie and what's big in 86 is the vhs market and tons of kids films because parents would just rent the shit and sit their kid in front of the tv and told them to watch cartoons uh, it's really kind of one of the big things. Uh, children's films and horror films is what really blew up the uh, VHS market. Well, the, uh, porn, but that's the, uh, the, I mean, that's the number one thing that always turns internet, DVD, all of it. It's always porn is the first adopter of it and the most successful adopter of new technology. So you can just, we're just going to talk a little bit about all these different variations of the film and how things change and how they change according to kind of the the era we're like the the film is currently in and what trends are in and how you sam sherman who is 
he is what he <laughs> what he was, which is just like a carny ass. He just like kind of shimmy around to the trends and he's trying to make the most money as possible. And it's just kind of an interesting selection of that brief period of time when drive-ins were dying, TV's kind of becoming the next big thing, and then VHS kind of wipes out even TV as far as like, like you know, very cheap produced films having a marketplace to be sold on. Yeah, I think really where this comes down, and this is just my opinion here, to why Sam insisted on following this through and reshooting so many times until it was, I wouldn't say perfect, but incomprehensible. I, I yeah, I mean, because it's just such a mess. It's 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 terrible to even try and comprehend any form of a plot, and we will, I I hope not, but maybe try to do so. But I think he really fought to get it to a finished, sellable point, specifically because somebody wasted money on it. The, the hearing his story, listening to this guy talk about this movie, it just seems that he's really pissed off about one thing: is that someone in the office bought the stupid fucking footage, and he just wanted to get his money back on it. I think really the whole point of the entire movie is, God damn it, I'm going to get my money. Because nobody, there's no artistic integrity here. Not one fucking pro- person believed in this. There is no story. If there was a script, it wasn't even written on napkins. It was just jotted down on somebody's fucking forearm. <laughs> there's there's little to anything to do What did he say with after all of it, though? What did he do? He made money. <laughs> and and it, I just can't possibly think much, though. <laughs> you know, I know he made money, but it but he made the money. That's all that matters to yeah. it's like, well, I, uh, I paid 30 grand for it and ended up making 250 grand out of it. Boom. I made money. Some sort of fucking house payment or alimony or something, uh, something very important, I'm sure. But at, at the very end of the day, it's one of those. Are we talking? Is this a lost gem of an art movie? No, this is something. Oh, that, God, no. This is something that I can see people paying $62 for a 4K high definition Blu ray of and then proceeding to bitch about it for months on the internet about how they got fucking ripped off on the worst movie ever. But it's such a dumb catch line to use for a fucking podcast episode or anything, but genuinely, the goddamn making of this movie is so far more interesting. It makes you want to fucking sit through and watch all of these films which we have, ju- just to understand it. And stupid me, it's always the, the biggest shame when I when I think. I thought by the end of the day, if I watched all of these, I would understand it a little bit better. Fuck off. Nope. Uh, fuck you, no. Yeah, there's no. nothing to understand. I mean, same thing about like the, the film Spookies, which has had this you know great revitalization, and everybody's like, oh, Spookies is so much fun, it's so great. I fucking hate Spookies. I think Spookies sucks. It's a terrible-ass movie. It's a sloppy movie put together from shooting new footage a lot like this. It's a patchwork together film. And what's interesting to me is because Vinegar Syndrome did that Spookies Blu-ray. I can give a fuck about owning Spookies. I wanted the documentary on it, which I eventually got to see. But the documentary is interesting as hell because I want to know what happened when they were making this film that it ended up being as like weird and uneven and kind of fucked up in a lot of ways. That's the interesting story to me. Like, uh, what is it? Uh, best worst movie? Is that the name of the Troll Two documentary? Yeah, or is that Best of the Worst? So. We yeah, we're either thinking of that or something from Red Letter Media. I don't know. I could be. Th- well, that's that's best, best of, of the, the worst. worst. But I think it's best worst best worst movie. But anyway, that documentary is way more entertaining or interesting than Troll Two. I would rather watch that any day over Troll Two. I understand exactly what you mean, and I don't know. It's it's hard to really say there's a difference, but I I really think. 
even though this this all three of these movies are dog shit. Troll Two is dog shit, but there's some there's some weird watchability for it. This there is nothing bridgeable for me. Oh, it's just bland. It's so bland. Without the making of the movie, without having that and knowing the story, there's fucking almost no point in watching it. But it becomes so much more interesting at that point that it's really rare. It's like movies like Snuff that you hear about for years that are legendary and they're built up, and then you finally see the movie, and it's one of the most disappointing things of your fucking life. Absolutely nothing happens in the last ten minutes. Oh, isn't it really fucked up that they're making these movies? No, it sucked. It sucked. Everything sucked. <laughs> it sucked. <laughs> it just sucked. And it's I don't, but I I I don't feel that much disappointment and anger with Raiders of the Living Dead. It just is one of those things where I went into this genuinely thinking, and I, I, it's funny, I've been texting Alexander Nash all day. Fuck, I don't, I don't, I thought I had something to say, and I don't know if I'm going to have something to say. And as I continued and watched through these movies, I felt, I felt like a toddler and just helpless of like, how did these people get to these points? I just don't understand the decisions that were made. Somebody has to explain it to me like I'm six years old, and I still fucking don't. I just, ugh. I don't understand it. Okay, like in Dying Day, Brett Piper's original film, Brett Piper made this like this gothic film, which starts with this, like I said before, this very strange um, new footage he shot for Sam Sherman. That it, it doesn't make any sense in context until you get to like maybe twenty five, thirty, maybe even forty minutes into the film, and a character just straight up like explicit like explains what is going on and like, okay, well that's what that means. But once you get to that footage, you can get to modern day. It starts out with like just a chase of a guy in a black leather jacket being chased by zombies. And you don't really know what's going on. And then he's in and out of this small town watching the three stooges because it's public domain. And we can just throw in a little bit of, a little bit of disorder in the court there because it's, you know, you don't have to pay for it and we can just waste a couple of minutes of screen time. In two different versions of this movie, the cocksucker says something like, oh, I left because it was a Joe Dorita movie while Curly clearly is on screen. Respect the fucking stooges. God damn it, man. Also, this film has narration. I completely forgot about that. There's narration from the main character that kicks in in 40 minutes, which is kind of important because we go from narration to narration, to no narration with the, the, the final product. But it's just him getting kind of randomly chased around, meeting some chick, and then finally learning that his family, hey, generations ago, owned slaves in Haiti, and he killed a, a slave's wife, his like great-great-grandfather, and then they put a, like a zombie voodoo curse on him. That's it. There's a guy who's making zombie stalking him who is part of some bloodline trying to kill off this other bloodline with zombies, and he's been it's doing it for years. more confusing at that point because the character explaining this goes, and it was passed on down to generations, and the sons of the sons of the sons have it, and now you have it. So are they brothers? How is there a way? <laughs> Only one person was involved in the original, so I, I maybe I don't know much about genealogy, but wouldn't it be two people to have two fucking people unless they're brothers I don't it's, why am I even questioning it why am I bringing it up it's just another thing to further the the, the what word do it ludicrousosity that's not a fucking word but we're gonna stick with it <laughs> not even close <laughs> it's not a word but we are going go to go with say, Mr. T pronunciation it's absoluticrous it's absoluticrous ludicrousosity it's it's fucking horse feathers 
but it's it's you're trying as a genuine member of the audience to try and like make some sense of it and that just it's the end of the movie and it's like well how the fuck are there more than one of you then are you brought what is this your evil brother through like silent film like i know like some of the audio is missing from the film but it's also just like kind of dark and creepy scenes of zombies coming out and attacking a person and then another scene of dialogue and then another zombie scene but it has a little bit of like a flow it's obviously very cheap and with the new edit it's an hour and 20 minutes long it's probably my most preferred version um because i think it's actually like it's it ain't great but it's a cheap little movie oh and we need to also introduce our our first main leads because they will be in all the other films because there is the love interest which uh what's the actress's name um it's like linda skyetti or something like that and there's bob devoe who plays the guy whose family is um being wiped out by a curse and then there's bob no it's bob bob sacchetti 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 yes just like full cheese writer sacchetti sam sherman really fucking hated um yeah i am bad at pronouncing names as you can tell from past episodes, but those actors are going to continue on through each iteration and always come back to shoot new footage for what is a brand new film with a brand new plot that just shares some scenes from this one because Sam Sherman was just sitting there going, nah, ain't right yet. Why? I have no idea. It was good enough to ship out and make your money off of. He just couldn't let it go. And that's kind of the most, interesting thing to me about is how sam sherman just couldn't say you know what maybe i should just like take the l on this one and walk away nah we can make we can make some more money off this something really personal had to happen like he he was sincerely pissed whomever spent the money he was pissed off at but maybe it's the fact that the original director and writer of the first two movies did all, you know he pissed him off and it became a fuck you sort of thing i'm going to make sure i change your movie as much as humanly possible because by the time we get to raiders of the living dead the, there is so much more and something i thought was really interesting and kind of i don't know uh it it just seemed a little egotistical as there's a commentary for this film and the director in like the first 5 minutes is like if you want to argue how much i actually shot you can take a stopwatch <laughs> and watch all 3 di-. like he he really wants at the beginning of the movie you to believe he directed yeah, all well, of this well, the but... problem was there was a bit of a it wasn't a legal battle it was just kind of like you know like some shit talking in the press between Brett Piper and Sam Sherman cuz Brett Piper's had his name removed from the uh, final cut, which is uh, Raiders of the Living Dead, because Sam Sherman said, I shot more than 50% of what this film is. I just used a little bit of footage from his film, so it's my movie now. Let me, let me, I can use a modern thing right now. This whole Motley Crue lawsuit's going on. People are suing each other because of their royalties, and they're claiming, well, they're, they're not playing things on stage. They're faking it. Sometimes you just keep fighting to win for for the absolute worst reasons on the planet that this dude is fighting to make sure he has the end all on this movie but even the very first iteration is fucking dog shit and really bad it's not even like student film bad it's just really really fucking bad it's it's nonsensical bullshit so it's still at the end of the day just a fucking crazy man i mean by the third movie he has scott schwartz star of scotty's x-rated adventure Uh, well he wasn't at the time you know he didn't have the uh the amazing size penis he was just a child 
starring in the movie, and it's completely well. I I wouldn't say he had an amazing sized penis. I think that's what made Scotty's X-rated Adventure such a uh, interesting movie is the normal. Or scene. you could bring up he was in a Christmas Story and the toy. Or you can talk about his his cock. He had a normal penis, and that it, I think <laughs> makes people feel better when they're watching porn when the male lead. But yes, no, he wasn't a Christmas story. And the, put the, that the in love... Teespring. Scotty Schwartz, normal penis. Yep, normal penis wasn't a Christmas story. There's the official bio for for Scott. Was he Flick? Which one was he? He's the other one. Yes, he, yeah, he's Flick. Flick. <laughs> Funnily enough, he does not play the character of Schwartz. He plays the character yeah. of a Flick. But anyway, so after Dying Day and Sam Sherman just doesn't release that, he says, you know what? I'm going to shoot some new footage, get these actors back. I'm going to get Bob Sacchetti, going to get Linda, whatever her last name was, and Bob DeVoe back. And the the hair changes a little bit um, from each one. But he adds like some more narration and changes the character into a journalist. You keep saying Linda, but do you mean Donna Asali? Donna Asali. Okay. <laughs> like, I'm, I'm just like, I'm looking at the hey, cast hey, list. I'm don't like, edit that shit out. <laughs> I, I, like, about two seconds ago, I was called her Linda Kasabian. <laughs> My brain doesn't work right sometimes. I'm like, there's a Leonard Corman, there's a Barbara Peterson, Stephanie Sherman, I don't know. <laughs> IMDB checking is for losers. We just say things on this podcast. I only have it up because I keep calling the fucking director Sam Shepard. I don't want the audience to be like, <laughs> I can't believe Sam Shepard did this fucking movie. And I will call her Linda Kasabian. We will just, like, we'll meet in the middle on that one. The episode you are currently listening to is available to watch exclusively on Patreon, shot in shocking Deathovision. You can watch this episode and so much more exclusively on Patreon. Visit patreon.com slash deathbydvd to learn more. And now, back to the show. And there's some extra characters added. There is um, some new footage of, like, there's a prison set, a like a, a rundown prison. You remember this way, way much more than I do because you just watched it and dumbass me couldn't find my Dark Knight disc for my, uh, for my DVD. So it's been probably 20 years since I saw this version of... Uh, Raiders of the Living Dead. Yeah, the, I, I would honestly say the, the very first version of this film, by the time we get to Raiders of the Living Dead, maybe about 6% of that footage remains in the movie. And then when you move on to the next iteration of the film that was shot, both of these original ones by Brett Piper, maybe you move up to like 10% or so, but there is a great deal of new stuff that's added, but none of it fucking makes sense. Um, you touching upon a point that you were, you had at the very beginning of this. The very first movie holds some semblance of a story that we start off in the the late nineteenth century, and they try to explain what's going on, and then it. Un- but even at the end, no matter how much it unravels, they try to develop something of like I'm your maybe brother, sibling, whatever. Our great ancestor killed somebody, and now we're haunted and cursed, and I have zombie slaves that are coming out. And no matter how bullshit it is, it's still an ending. 
when we move into the next iteration of the movie, it just becomes more just nonsensical speed freak fucking madness. You have some weird, there's just uh, multiple sequences of, it starts off as, as not even good burns, but they'll just set somebody on fire that doesn't look like they're padded, and then there'll be a really terrible cut to a mannequin or something propped up with wire wearing a flannel shirt just burning. Five, ten minutes of that. Five, ten minutes of the lead character just kind of meandering around. He plays a deeper drunk. Um, and then you've got this this doctor character that kind of interludes back and forth. All of it seems like it might have had a core script. Like, there, there, there definitely seems like there's a story, but the integral parts of the story never got fucking shot. <laughs> I don't know. Well, you add new characters. Like, one is played by Bob Allen, who is an old Western star. He's added to this version. And uh, Zita Johan from The Mummy. The, the Mrs. Mummy from The Mummy. Yeah, um, they added these characters and try to like really string along a plot of um, something a little bit more coherent than your ancestors are from Haiti. There's like mad scientist type shit involved and um, some, you know, just a couple of other things added to it to kind of flesh it out. And Sam Sherman wasn't happy with that, but he did because I'm assuming he tried to really sell this version of it and just couldn't get his money back i find the second version to, to be the the uh, well this is a hard statement because raiders of the living dead is the end all take all when it comes to discombobulated incoherent movies but the second version so much had been has been removed from the story that was very important to it that it just doesn't fucking make sense that we're just jumping around suddenly there are zombies there's nothing that connects and when we get to what connects it's shooting all this stuff with Scott Schwartz who was was a child at this t- period and it kind of fits in but still there's just zero explanation for everything and it's it just has to be a grudge match that they wanted to remove Brett Piper's story because what little story he had at least worked for the fucking movie. It pushed it forward a little bit. Well, I mean, he he started out with such a like a small cast and not much money. He was able to like kind of slap together this hour long almost demo reel if you really want to get into it. But when you start adding Sam Sherman, all of his kind of connections to these old stars and him going back to his Al Addison tricks of just like, let's shoot some new footage and we'll try to like add some connective tissue here, here, here. But ultimately what he does is change the story so dramatically that the footage that he does pull from that doesn't particularly connect in dark night. I mean, it does enough because um, he he knows enough to like how to shoot it to make it connect. But story wise, it's just kind of a little bit more all over the place. And, we like we start removing dialogue from some scenes to play them like with music. Dying day plot points that they were saying in those scenes aren't revealed in this version of it, so we can kind of repurpose that footage to to for it to mean something else. And when we get to Raiders of the Living Dead, there's even more of that when you do start adding um, like the Scott Schwartz character because there's a couple of scenes where Scott Schwartz and his like the neighbor friend um, just kind of like hang out and go. Look over there. Hey, we've been on the side the entire time. It's almost like a Saw film of like, hey, you know what? This character, they've been over here through like the last six movies. You just didn't see them. They were standing in the corner. They've been working with Jigsaw this whole time, though. There are some really weird shots in the Raiders of the Living Dead that that Sam reshot, especially with the kids and Scott Schwartz. Scott Schwartz. 
a lot of just like Dr. Caligari, weird rinse dream angles, super harsh, bizarre lighting, like nouveau fucking Dadaist style art. It's really weird shit. None of it seems complimentary either. It's not like it's good weird shit. It's all just very aghast. <laughs> well, all the Scott Schwartz stuff is like color time differently, and it's a much more brightly lit version of the film. And when you add in the old dying day Brett Piper footage, which it has much more contrast to it much more like um saturation and then when you start cutting to the like raiders of the living dead era it's so much flatter i mean the dialogue is probably a little bit better honestly because you have a higher caliber actor in raiders of the living dead but the overall vibe of the film has been so dramatically altered because we're turning it at this point when we do we're going to start talking about raiders we try to turn it into this kind of kids film, but what doesn't match up is we still bring back Bob DeVoe, Bob Zacchetti. I got it right. Um, uh, we bring them back, but their shit doesn't match with the Scott short shit really until the end. So we have these kind of dis two disparate films that kind of start meeting in the middle towards the last, like maybe fourth of the film. So it gets really discombobulated because with Raiders of the Dead, there's a whole new sequence at the beginning. It's about 20 minutes long of Bob Sacchetti now as a terrorist who is hijacking a nuclear chemicals truck, whatever nuclear chemicals are, and is going to blow up a nuclear power plant unless the police release some rando people from prison. We never explain this terrorist thing and we never hear him talk in this version of the film because Sam Sherman hated him and thought he was a shitty actor. He said, you've got no dialogue anymore in this film. <laughs> so he's the silent terrorist. Spotted tanker calling car four. It starts when terrorists hijack a nuclear waste tanker. Man, some kind of a terrorist. He's holding the people at the Mill Run nuclear power plant hostage. You just burned him a little. You had me worried. One murder was enough. Only the kids know it's real. Raiders of the Living Dead. You've been spending too much time with your experiments. You've got to forget these fantasies and get out in the real world. Is that what you call it with all these creeps running around? What are you cooking up in your lab? A new death rate. I want to rule this block. My grandfather's a people collector. I don't know where he digs them up. I don't mind donating my video player to science, but I'd hate to see you get hurt with it. No, I won't get hurt. This is really great. You see, the voltage is multiplied here and produces the laser beam in this part of the circuit. Warning, high voltage. Removal of cover exposes hazardous voltages. The kid from the toy is growing up and he's made a laser gun from a video player. The last guy who went poking around out there didn't come back. While zombies begin taking over the town. Maybe I could save them. It goes nothing. And a 15-year-old kid's video gun may become the city's only protection. Shoot! Shoot him! As night begins to fall and the living dead come to life. Come on, what are you waiting for? doesn't work. Let's go! Only the kids know it's real. But who will believe them? Raiders of the Living Dead. And after this, it's never talked about again. But do, do you remember the show on Nickelodeon, Pete and Pete? Yes. 
all the Scotty Schwartz stuff with the weird little neighbor kid, it just it comes off as a really demented, bizarre episode of Pete and Pete. And it's kind of okay way to describe this movie, but it's nowhere near as slap happy or whimsical. Like there's fucking nothing whimsical about this goddamn movie whatsoever. And it's uh, all all the stuff that's been regurgitated and thrown back forward. We don't even really have the cool effects from Brett Piper anymore, which was interesting in the commentary with Sam Sherman, how he 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 kind of side-eye talked about Brett, of how he's really talented, how he's really great, but not a lot of his work shows up anymore, and we've moved into, like Nash said, uh, this this almost child-friendly, weird universe. It's like an episode of Pee-wee's Playhouse on, on acid. It's really but uncomfortable. It, but it's not consistent, though. That's no, the crazy part about it. It's just kind of like piecemealed thrown throughout this other adult story that was Dark Knight. So... The, like it's not so much of a kids and I'll say right now that I originally saw this and I took interest in this film because I saw it on USA in the late 80s on the Saturday Night Horror film and I think I read about it in Fangoria so it, to me it was this like new film that was coming out and I watched it and I'm like that's fucking really bad but to me at that age I didn't realize so much of how films are made and why it didn't make any sense. It didn't feel like a, a like a chopped up state, like a, like stitched together Frankenstein film. It was just like, Oh, that's just a bad movie with like, like ray guns and shit. I didn't pay attention to the fact that it had three stooges footage in it for no reason. But the one thing that Sam Sherman did fix the kick-ass theme song at the beginning of Raiders of the living dead. Dun it, dun it, dun it, dun it. We are the Raiders of the Living Dead. Dead are after me. Dead are after me. Do you think the inconsistencies make it, it, it a more watchable experience, or do you find Raiders of the Living Dead to be the the more difficult one to watch? I think it does add something to it because, well, a for the for me personally, this is the first time I ever saw or heard about a laser disc player, so that was a revelation. You, they got movies on some kind of giant discs, just laser disc player, and you know, it wasn't so out of the realm of possibility that maybe you could make a ray gun. <laughs> A laser disc player and maybe like that concept is kind of cute you got you know teens running around with like laser guns shooting um uh shooting zombies with negative scratches and bad special effects and that adds something to the film it adds and makes it a little bit more preposterous the, the terrorist part at the beginning is interesting to the fact because at the time period, it's, it being like 1985, nuclear energy was a big topic of discussion. You know, Toxic Adventure, all these things. Um, class of Newcomb High, other trauma <laughs> films. <laughs> yeah, your, your, your example for for the 1980s, the Cold War, people worrying about being nuked, yeah, Toxic Avenger, things like that. <laughs> you know, those things. Nuclear shit was like... Well, it's just the new rage, and we've added that to the beginning of the film. And you can just see these pieces coming together and mixing with footage from like 1982 uh, and how it went from gothic 
to maybe something a little bit more noir and detective like to now being kind of a, a, a more of a wacky chuck, like kids film. And that's because of the way the market is Capitalism, moving. And that's baby. what a lot of people don't understand about horror films, especially because of exploitation cinema is so much of what dictates what was in those films. Why people, man, the eighties films were so great. Eighties uh, horror was so awesome. And it's because it's of that time period. And, there were trends to follow. That's why there was a thousand fucking slasher films up until 1984. There was a new one every week, but people chased it trends. And you can see where those trends stop, pause, start, start again. Um, like slashers never stop being made. They just stop being incredibly popular. Like there was still stuff made, being made in 1987 in slasher films, 1988, 89. It didn't really die out. It just, kind of went rogue and it went a little bit more underground and then scream brought it all back way for the worse. But it's, that's what's so kind of interesting about exploitation to me is how those trends kind of show themselves. And you can honestly kind of dictate what actual history, like world history is going on with really cheap, dumb exploitation films. Um, just because you can see those patterns so much better than you can see in, say, major Hollywood stuff. And, um, you know, I mean, you did have your rah rah America Chuck Norris things, and you could kind of see what was the like the uh, zeitgeist at the time. But with horror, you can really just kind of pick it apart and see the things that were bothering people. And mostly people are in the 80s where we're worried about being stabbed and nuclear waste. I think what what you just said is probably exceedingly more interesting than than legitimately even the production stories of this movie and it comes down to looking at the bizarrity of the market but horror fans really have a problem with wearing blinders and not wanting to look or accept the fact that many things that we treasure and that we love were just product and entirely made to make money, and there wasn't, you can find art and things, but a lot of things they were just kind of made and slapped together, and I, I am not even trying to trash talk this like I'm standing on a pedestal looking down at Raiders of the Living Dead. There's fucking no art in this movie. There's some weird stuff, and, and it, a lot It of, has goofy charm, that is all. A lot of the interesting things happen to be just really bad scenes. Like, there's a 10-minute sequence, maybe a little bit shorter. It's about, if it isn't 10 minutes, it's eight and a half to nine minutes long of Scott Schwartz with the theme song to this movie, just some great synth, a little bit of rock and roll playing in the background while he's working on the laser disc player, and that's it. He's just screwing stuff and unscrewing stuff, and then suddenly a death rate. Some of the worst soldering I've ever seen in my life. I used to do soldering professionally, and that, my friend, is shit soldering. We should do an episode about all your work with the cartels back in Mexico and the, the speedboats yes, used to work. Yes, the cartel was very interesting in my soldering game. We used to solder speedboats for the cartel. I'm trying to enrich... <laughs> An interesting story. I'm giving you a legacy. You know, you gotta have a background like wrestlers for this show. That's, I don't know. I, we, we don't. So I'm from Colombia. I used to solder for the cartels, and now I've come to America to crush American capitalism by a wrestling Hulk Hogan. I was well. Uh, what's he gonna do? Say the N word and fight you? I don't know. Probably have Zenu fix him. 
Is he a Scientologist, Hulk Hogan? That is the rumor that he oh, wow. he's gone to the UFO gods. They're letting everybody in. We should try. <laughs> we could get some well, sponsorship. Well, Hulk Hogan has money. He did sue somebody. Because he said the N-word and didn't want people to know. <laughs> womp, womp, womp. Oh, i got to cue that sound effect up. Oh, I, if I ever had a point, I don't know what it was. Hulk Hogan's a racist. That's your point. It, yes. Allegedly. He's litigious. Let's just say allegedly. Allegedly. Yeah, I don't have Hulk Hogan in court money. I've got some people in court money, but it ain't going against Hulk Hogan. I didn't really like it when you uh, talk shit about me on that podcast, brother. I'll work you into a shooting bot, brother. I, it's, it's just uh, looking at the market and how it created a lot of beloved things. There are some of the, I, I think more people like the sequels to Friday the 13th and Nightmare on Elm Street than they like the original movie, things like that. Halloween, maybe not so much. If you, I don't know, it's about Halloween. It's a terrible fucking series. I mean, okay. Put it this way, look at, say, what, about 1987, I think, with Nightmare on Elm Street. What came out? Bad Dreams. Did you see Bad Dreams? Oh, yeah, Richard Lynch. Yeah, that, I mean, that's the market. That's the market they're going for. And uh, Phantom, the fucking opera with Robert England. I don't know how that shit got greenlit. It, it comes to a, a weird point where... It sounds at some angles like we're shit-talking this movie, but still, from a horror history, a film history standpoint, I have a lot of respect for Sam Sherman and what he ended up doing. But it's like a Captain Ahab sort of thing of just, like, this fucking psychotic guy <laughs> just not stopping. I have to have more. It has to be It has to be more. We have to have a weird death rate. Let's just make it more. None of it was necessary, and, and, and it's it. what's truly unruly is at least building upon the initial film that was made by Brett Piper. There was a story. We go so far from God on the journey with Raiders of the Living Dead that the story doesn't remain. And it's it, it's a question that's raised by Sam Sherman. You know, you can see how much more footage I shot, but what are you proud of here? I don't. I just don't understand where the crowning glory is at the end of this. But it's so fascinating. It's, it's the greatest example of watching... How, you know how you he made two hundred and fifty thousand dollars. That's there's the pride. I, 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 I just I'm not impressed. I'm sorry. I mean that's <laughs> that's not that's a, that's not even a lot of money in this economy right the fuck now, especially in the eighties. Nineteen eighty six dollars. I mean, what did he get? A fucking a Mercury Cougar or something, or, or, or a, a new car? No, he bought another shit movie and then tried to do it again. It, and it it truly is a dying art, and that's kind of where my jumble of stuff with this this fascination with the market and the era. Some of the most beloved exploitation on horror films of all time came out through canon and, and movie, movie companies just a little bit bigger than what Sam Sherman was dealing with. And none of these movies were made for any other reason than making art. Like, there, every time Charles Bronson showed up to make a Death Wish movie, it was 100% for whatever the fuck they were giving him. <laughs> whatever money, whatever sponsorship, whatever was going on. And it, it's and, business. Yeah, and it, but that market died so fucking fast. And it's like the remnants of it, we have some incredibly famous movies. Specifically, I'll use canon, because so many beloved, just classic films came from canon. Fucking Conan the Barbarian, things like that have relation, at least, 
through producers. You move into what, like 1990, the era is fucking dead. There's there's nothing left. So uh, these carnies, people like Sam Sherman, they're just fucking out of it. And unless you manage to keep some title rights to something like Halloween, like the Akkads did, you couldn't stay in the game. I mean, the only reason Mustafa Akkad kept afloat for as long as he did, was keeping the rights to Halloween, which was a smart move. I mean, he didn't care if they were shitty movies or not. He was getting paid. God bless him. The well, Muslim like, guy. Places like Canon, they wanted to be film studios. Like Golden Globus, like liked the Hollywood like lifestyle, even though they were living on a completely different rung of it than actual Hollywood. But they they liked the, the glitz and glamour of, the, of movies and films at the at the theater. And they at their time, they should have backed off producing things that larger scale, stop trying to make them like Spider-Man and like focus on the burgeoning home video market. If they had done that, they'd still be around like Charles band. He knew when it was time to get out of theatrical production is what there's just no money in it for. I'm making all of my money on video and he was able to adapt and he's still adapting to this day. Um, I mean, I don't like any of the full moon stuff that's come out in the last say five to 10 years, particularly, but it's still like making him some sort of money so I mean, he's able to like merchandise off of his new things i mean that's what he seems most interested in now is selling merchandise but i mean that's the way the film studios go i mean you you sell funko pops you're not selling a film you're not selling a movie you're selling stuff and i don't want to see this kind of stuff like fade away i like the just the making of something like raiders of the living dead how interesting that story is and to be able to compare all the versions of these films. That's what I find interesting because the movies themselves are shit. But I, I mean, I've had a conversation about this before. It's just like, I don't, it doesn't matter what happened while you were making your movie. The final product speaks for itself. It doesn't matter. You like your AD was like three hours late that day. It doesn't matter. The truck broke down that day or you ran out of film or what. None of those problems matter when there is a final product. But if you want to tell that story, I can find that story interesting as well. But just I'm not going to give your film any leeway and say, well, Raiders of the Living Dead, it's so patchwork together. It's so amazing how they were able to have this film and it make money. And I'm just I, I, I applaud that. It's like, well, they made shit. I mean, it's what it ultimately was. It was a shitty film. I love the history behind that shitty film, but I will not call this film good but he stretched the imagination. It's just, it's a neat little piece of artwork that was in just this barrage of cheap jack shit that was going on late seventies, early eighties. And I would say Raiders of the living dead is almost like a death cry for that. Like even somewhat shot on film, it started slowly dying out because past 86, the um, home VHS cameras were coming out. And people started shooting stuff like Cannibal Campout, Splatter Farm, uh, Sledgehammer, and that started becoming what this film is. This was kind of the death of that 70s carny ass um, steal a film from the Philippines and shoot some new footage. Like that real like retitle a movie and sell it to the drive in again for a, for a, another like crack at three hundred dollars like. That's died at this point, and Raiders of the Living Dead is kind of the death throes of it. And that's why I think it's kind of an interesting story is to see how the market changed as he was just trying to get this into some shape to actually make money off of it.
I've seen Raiders of the Living Dead maybe five times, and all within the last month while we've been planning and trying to put this episode together. And each time, I've uncovered something different, I've found something new, but none of which is uh, life-changing or pivotal or helps the movie whatsoever. But it's still unique in the sense that the fight was fought. Yes, the history of it is important. I think really the the most interesting thing that comes from Raiders of the Living Dead is the study on the market and especially the discussion, all your points that have been brought up on this really beloved era of, of the horror market. Some of the most entertaining and well-known movies of all time were released between 1980 and 1986 or so. And past that point, we really start moving into the decrepancy of horror, 90s horror Lots of people fight for. I'm not here to say it's good or bad, but it's obvious market-wise and monetary, monetarily-wise that horror died throughout the 90s. It was really in its death throes in the 2000s. It's coming back big, and we're getting major produced things, and studios like Blumhouse, they're great, but there aren't really big differences between studios like Blumhouse and Canon and Sam Sherman's production company. A lot of these things are movies that are being purchased for a few millions of dollars or ideas that are being rebooted and turned into bigger productions. I mean, Halloween, we got three new Halloween movies that tie into everything. Oh, that's great. That's neat. We're getting it with The Exorcist. This is nothing more than even the sci-fi channel when you would get these, uh, what's the name of that terrible production company? The Asylum. The Asylum, you get the Asylum knocks off snakes on a train. That's kind of where we're at again, but they're dressed up, they're much fancier, they're bigger budget movies. Megan is a movie that could have easily been Raiders of the Living Dead. And I mean that in the sense of purchasing and scripts and these ideas that just become something so unequivocally different by the end of the production that there's no point in even having a relation to the original movie. Like, Brett Piper's name being on Raiders of the Living Dead strictly is because of some sort of legal battle, because there's really fucking nothing with his original film that has anything to do with this film. No, and he's gone. He's still working. Um, he still does special effects, I think, mostly um, on... What was that? Sharkenstein. He he's worked done on some that. Asylum he, movies. Yeah, he's doing like he's still working in the realm of low budget cinema and stuff like this is like what gave him his start. But he had passion to do this, and he wasn't lazy. He just kept making stuff and kept making stuff and kept making stuff. And I don't think he's ever been attached to a film that's ever really made a shit ton of money or even be considered like, wow, that's a really great film. But Fuck it, he's got a career. If he loves what he does, then uh, he's come out a winner, and he's worked in the film industry for 40-some-odd years now. Yeah, he has no credits in 2023, but hey, that's no biggie. I don't either this year. 2022 did special effects on Real Monsters, R-E-E-L, Monsters. 2020, Shark Encounters of the Third Kind. 2019, Zillafoot. 2018, like Hanimator, Sharkenstein, Nightmare, Empire of the Apes. He's working. He's not working steadily, but hey, that's more than most people can say, and I'm pretty sure it's more than what Samuel Sherman can say because he's 
Is he dead? Maybe he's dead. Yeah, <laughs> yeah not, he's dead. Not he entirely sure, but I'm pretty sure this guy's dead. And... <laughs> he still has on his IMDb though something upcoming. Apparently, a movie that was just completed from 1994. His IMDb just says born. So if this this gentleman has still not died, I'm sure the good Lord is waiting. Whichever one he believes in, in good arms. Yeah, 2020 executive producer uh, beyond this earth. Sam Sherman is is somebody that's a really interesting character because you could do an entire show about how this guy is a horror hero and how this guy worked with Al Adamson and produced stuff, but you could also do an entire show how he's an absolute fucking villain and took this guy's movie and out of spite almost changed it as much as humanly possible to do something different that was only for his own monetary gain. But still, these people make up the interesting cast of players that really are responsible for... I know I've used the term a great deal. Every episode has a word of the show, but some of the most beloved goddamn movies of our generations as horror fans. And I, I it's not just, oh, I, I prefer the 80s because I was fucking born in the late 80s. It's not like I was there in 86 to watch these movies. I really think 80s horror is one of the biggest pinnacles of the genre. Not that I like it the most. I think it's what most people prefer, and it's where most of the... Uh, movies that people associate with horror in general came from. Even something as simple as The Blob, the remake of The Blob, these are all associated with the era, with the 1980s and a specific theme. And Raiders of the Living Dead and Sam Sherman were all incredibly 1980s ideas that just cannot exist outside of it anymore because the era and the style of production just fucking died. Well, I mean, the 80s was such a flood and exploitation. Um, I mean, sexploitation was down, but like black exploitation was down, but like horror went way, way up. But with the flood of horror in that area, people were, you know, kind of remaking the same movie again. I mean, they were shooting what the burning and madman at the same time, and they were essentially both cropsy movies and all this stuff. But it also bred innovation at the time because there were so many of the same thing. People had to like, well, we can't do exactly that again. How do we make this slightly different? So you get weird variations on familiar, well-treaded area, but this new variation, oh, that's that's a little bit more interesting just because it's slightly wackier in some way. And sometimes you end up with just a boring run-of-the-mill, like, bad 80s like slasher film. But that's kind of what's interesting. And now people are just shooting whatever the fuck they can shoot. So they can kind of just hopefully get it on Tubi or some other like streaming service. And just, there's just so much content. It's almost impossible to stick out. Um, and there's some, probably some really great stuff out there. That's just like laying on like the back edges of Amazon prime that only has two or three views. And, it's just waiting to be discovered. It's just how do you discover it though? Because you do have things like Raiders of the Living Dead playing on the USA network and me randomly as a child just going, what the hell is this? That shit's just so much harder. It's just so much harder to like break out and get noticed because the market is just fucking flooded with content and people just scroll and scroll and scroll and say, let's watch friends again. It's easier. I don't have to think about it. Click. I think one thing that is very similar to the 1980s or even the 70s indie filmmaking scene to now is if you want to stand out as an artist, yes, exactly what you're saying is true. The market is so flooded 
with just every single person in the world. Like Andy Warhol said, has their five minutes. And just like David Cronenberg and Videodrome, everyone has their own TV name. You have to, like Sam Shepard, it's not goddamn Sam Shepard! Like Sam, <laughs> <laughs> like Sam Sherman, you have to be a carny. You have to figure out how to holler and get people attracted to your brand. We might be talking to somebody that was just trying to fucking smoke a joint and listen to this show about Raiders of the Living Dead, but maybe it'll inspire them to make a movie and, and get out there on their own. Because we're talking like everybody out there has got a camera in their office, and hey, you got a fucking phone. You can shoot a movie. This should be... Raiders of the Living Dead, one of the grandest examples of how you can really goddamn do anything if you know how to fucking edit and you have, I would say, roughly thirty to $40,000. <laughs> if Al Adamson could make a living in the film industry in the era that he worked in, you can too. Because it's just about making stuff. Just keep making it and keep making it and keep making it. You make a movie for $30,000 and you sell it for $40,000. Holy shit, you just made $10,000. Who cares? Who care? Don't try to like, don't worry about like money. Don't like try to turn a profit. I mean, you're going to end up cutting your nose off to spite your face if you don't. But like, don't worry about like, well, how am I going to, how am I going to take this to the next level? You, you just keep making stuff. That's that's it. That's how you get to the next level. Continue to make things. Always be making something. The last episode, we had the Attack of the Killer Refrigerator guys, Mark Vaux and Michael Savino. In 1984 to 1989, they shot their party footage and released a $25 movie that is now on Blu-ray, a beloved classic. The tapes have gone for about $2,000, and Terrorvision has released it with... Uh, so much behind the, I own the disc it's an incredible amount of behind the scenes stuff it's 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 beautiful that has it's they've retained and created a history that people didn't even know existed for god's sakes splatter farm was at a video store where i live in like the late 80s and early 90s splatter farm is trash but it came to a video store out in the middle of fucking nowhere that's how it works, folks. You just keep making stuff. You can never stop believing, and you always got to push your art. And at the beginning of the episode, and toward the middle also, I said something of, I, I just don't know about the artistic integrity in Sam Sherman's Raider of the Living Dead. But, there ain't none. But at the same time, pushing it, releasing it, getting it out, the, the second version of the movie on USA Up All Night, whatever, every way that this movie came out is still an extensuation of art by default, and it's still part of that war of, of just keep creating. I just don't want to, at the end of this, come off so half-cocked and brazen to accuse this movie of not being filled with beautiful, mind-numbing art, but goddamn, all three versions of this movie are just, like, flaccid cock. Not not even big, good-looking cock, just flaccid. It's big, trash, but I like trash sometimes, I and way? sometimes I don't like trash. But I will never call trash legitimately. It's like a four-star movie. No, it's trash, but I enjoyed watching it. Hard Rock Zombies, it's fucking trash. I love that movie. We both spent like genuine American currency on this. We own it. We didn't steal it. It's not a bootleg. I, I, would, I would recommend it for the reasons that we have discussed 
on this show. But this isn't the type of movie that you would sit down with six friends and smoke a bowl on. No, you want to hear the commentary. You want to get into some weird bits of horror history. I dare say, I think you, I, Alexander Nash, have probably provided a better commentary and content on this film than ever before. I didn't slog off Brett Piper enough, though. <laughs> if I want to make Sam Sherman happy, I gotta go, well, Brett thinks he he shot more than I did, but he didn't. I took most of his stuff out. Yeah. That commentary track is kind of funny. He's so defensive. For no reason. It's like the first ten minutes of the commentary. If you get a stopwatch, do you own a stopwatch? If you own a stopwatch, you watch all three versions of this movie here. The first is 20 minutes, and then another 20 minutes is added on. This guy has sat and done the math in his living room. He has spent a lot of time to, to, to just... He just didn't want to pay the guy. I, I don't want to pay you. So I've directed this now. So at the end of the day, Raiders of the Living Dead, I think, almost entirely exists as a piece of hate and pettiness. That Sam Sherman just really, really wanted this guy to not have his movie and any credit on it at all. And it ex- <laughs> it exists with, like, written by, associatedly written by. He figured out wording to just make it just enough. But the thing is, it's like the whole Motley Crue reference I made earlier. Sometimes you gotta know when to hold them. It's like Kenny Rogers said. Why do you want your name on this? Why do you want to win this battle? This movie is not the battle to win. And just like the Motley Crue lawsuits, my God, who cares? Give the old man his money. Just go away. No one likes any of you. I don't, I don't, who, who's going to these goddamn Motley Crue shows? Who is buying all these tickets? Why, what, what are you doing? I'm sorry. Just go see Taylor Swift. That's the end of the show. Uh, you know, shake it off. It's the Taylor Swift. <laughs> Nope, nope, that's it. You're done. That's the ending. That's it. Fuck it. Just go see Taylor Swift. (laughs) The asteroid's full of bottles empty. Just go see Taylor Swift. Done. Show's over. Nope, my headphones are coming out. (laughs) Death by DVD is recorded in front of a dead studio audience. Portions of today's programming have been mechanically reproduced. The management and the staff wish you a pleasant good night and good morning.
I'm Linnea, and I like Death by DVD. It's a statement.